Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel series. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Um, Each and every Nerdist Writers Panel benefits 826LA, the national writing program for students. Uh, Please check them out at 826LA.org. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. Uh, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. Uh, We're still doing this retreat in Orvieto, Italy, which I am teaching, a two-week workshop uh, whereby you will write a script, a TV script, a movie script, you can work on comic book stuff, whatever you want that I can help you write. We're going to spend two weeks writing in Italy, about 90 minutes north of Rome in this beautiful little town. Uh, There are not very many Americans there, so we're the worst ones there. Um, and it's, it's just the most fun you can have while actually getting work done. Um, about half the group last year came out with really excellent drafts of um, TV pilots and, and movie scripts. Uh, and I think this year will be even better. I think we have about six uh, people signed up, and we're looking for a couple more. Uh, you know, and I'm looking for some high-quality writers and humans uh, because you know we're all going to be hanging out for two weeks so i'd like some good people and if you listen to the nerdist writers panel then you are good people so come to italy uh come for a couple weeks write a script and you know you never know what'll happen one of the students uh who wrote a script is now in this year's atx pitch competition another one has had some interest from agents and stuff um it's it's pretty cool uh and and you know I know you guys can do this. You just have to put aside the couple weeks. Join us in Italy. Go to michelangeloscreenwriting.com. That's, you know, like the artist, Michelangelo. Screenwriting.com. Click on the Orvieto Retreat, Practical Film and TV Writing. We'll do some kind of basic stuff, but really it's a workshop. I treat it like a writer's room, and, you know, we all sit around and we work on each other's stuff, and it's collaborative and it's fun and Like I said, let's get some good people there, uh, which I know that you are. MichelangeloScreenwriting.com. Come write in Italy. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. This is how it starts. Uh, Invisibly, we slipped into the the, the zone. Well, I put you at ease to open up about all of the POI secrets. Uh, we're here in the person of interest offices. Please, gentlemen, introduce yourselves so the podcast listeners know what you sound like. Uh, hi, I'm Greg Plegeman. Uh, and I'm Jonah Nolan. And you all know who you are. Um, let's talk about, uh, as I said, and, and I really meant this, you guys have been in demand since we started doing this Nerdist Writers Panel podcast. Oh, that's great. Three years ago. Um, so I have to start with, where did the show come from? Uh, I'm sure it's fairly well trod, but tell me a little bit about pitching this show and selling the show, and why specifically, why this is a show that you wanted to do. Sure. Um, it, it started for me uh, when I was a kid, and, and 
England, the CCTV security cameras had gone up following the troubles in Ireland, and uh, Northern Ireland, rather, in the 1970s and 1980s. And so growing up as a kid in England in the mid-'80s, um, in addition to um, um, not being able to consume any food that had any flavor, um, <clears throat> you, you were dimly aware that there were cameras everywhere, and then even and then sort of even more dimly aware that they couldn't possibly have enough people watching all of those cameras. So the, this is the panopticon effect and, and, and the panopticon paradox, which is, well, they might be watching, but I'm not sure they're watching. So as little kids, we figured out pretty, pretty quickly that they were, not, they were not watching. They were just dead cameras staring at you. But I was fascinated by this idea of that, that sort of all-seeing eye. Um, we, I, we moved to the States. We moved to Chicago when I was 11. And America at that time, you did not have surveillance cameras everywhere. And then sadly, you know, over the, over the course of my lifetime, that has, for good reasons and bad, completely transformed. I mean, we are now the most surveilled country in the world, I would have to imagine, probably more so in China, more so in the former Soviet Union. We're surveilled both publicly and privately. Not just a government effort, but probably much more intrusively a private effort. Google knows way more about us than the NSA. Mm-hmm. And the big concern for everyone in prison was like, oh shit, the NSA knows what, you know, might have some of Google's stuff. <laughs> it's like, right. wait, why are we more comfortable? <laughs> so in, kind of in, 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 in the middle of all of that, and I'd read um, Shane Harris's book about Admiral Poindexter and his effort to build total information awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is back following 9-11. And so all these ideas have been kind of bouncing around in, in my head. Long been, long been interested in broken characters, redemptive stories, and sort of, you know, the, the kind of artifacts and debris from the Cold War, you know, um, characters who served their purpose and been kind of abandoned, neglected, tossed aside, planned obsolescence in people, basically. Mm-hmm. Fascinated by spies who were out of work. I, I uh, went to school in D.C. in, the, in what, was, what was known then as the post-heroic warfare moment, which was the fall of... <coughs> the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall, which which uh, was Greg was there there for, um, I'm sure we'll get back to that, um, and uh, and the and Clinton era um, um, problems in Somalia. Following that, basically Americans weren't doing weren't doing war. That was over, mm-hmm. right? So um, we we find ourselves in this in this kind of moment in which. All of those Cold War operatives, spies, etc., were out of a job. The CIA was like, well, what the fuck would we need that for? Um, and so all of these kind of ideas are kicking around in my head. And, and, and I've worked mainly in the movie business for, for most of my career. And I went in to have a general meeting with J.J. Abrams, who was a guy who I'd, I'd long, long been a fan of. And, uh, and he'd wanted to sit down with me for a long time. And so we sat down and talked about movies. I've been a huge fan of, of Lost. And, um, and J.J.'s work in, in film as well. And... Um, we sat down and it became this marathon meeting that went on and on and on and we were looking for different things that we could find to collaborate on the film front and then finally I just said well, look you guys are you know fantastic producers of television some of the best TV producers in the business and I had this idea for a TV show that I've been mm-hmm. kicking around for a while um, and so well, I found- what in your head made it a TV show and not a film because there are again there are big ideas and you've never been afraid of working with big ideas sure. on film uh, so what to you made it a TV show it was the it was the exact procedural aspect of it. It was mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, with the panopticon, with all this information, and, and this is the thing I was most interested in, not not the war on terror, you know, what they would use it for, which, 
which seemed to me almost kind of, the, I mean, that was the main event in everyone's mm -hmm. mind, but actually probably would be the smallest subset of data. What I was interested in, and, and I'd first been exposed to the idea, I think, in, in um, a James Elroy novel called American Tabloid, mm -hmm. where at various moments he talks about the FBI listening in on mob phone calls and the rulings at that point from justice, which were, well, if they don't talk about something relevant to organized crime in the first 30 seconds, you... You know, you, you, you have to hang up. And so the mobsters would always get on the phone and they would talk about whatever for 30 seconds and wait for the click and then they would get into their business at hand. I was just interested in all the information. You have the FBI agents listening deep into the night in the 1950s and 60s and they always were listening to mafiosa talking about, you know, all of the things they were going to do that had nothing to do with the crimes that the FBI was trying to track down, and you're fascinated by what, the, what do you you know what do you do in that situation? You're on the phone, you're listening, you're trying to bust <coughs> Sam Giancana or you know the, you know the Chicago family, and one of them talks about you know killing their spouse or killing. It's not in line with the investigation you're chasing down. Mm -hmm. What do you, how did that weigh on your conscience? So here we come, you know, here we're stepping into the surveillance state and saying, well, you know, what about all these little stories? What about all these all these irrelevant stories that have nothing to do with the larger, you know, the, the huge, you know, glamorous sort of counterterrorism stuff. Just the banal crimes that happen in New York every day. And forget the TV of it all. I mean, they really do. There's a, there's a murder in New York. I think we did the numbers on it. It was a murder in New York City roughly, um, roughly uh, once every 40 hours or something. And of those, half of them are, or a third of them are premeditated. So actually this whole weekly structure it actually kind of works out roughly accurately in terms of the actual numbers. You were looking at New York City, and you had access. I know it's kind of hard. It's kind of horrible. Um, uh, but I think someone at various points we talked to people who thought it would be way more than that. They're like, no, there are like a thousand murders a week. It's like, no, right. you've watching. You've been watching too much network. It's still a little it did used to be, yeah. But it's it's uh, it's not that way anymore. Anyway, so I was fascinated with, you know, the the twenty million people living in New York and all these different stories, and. If you had the ability to, to know, you know, um, this is the next story buried inside mm -hmm. this massive, you know, city of, uh, uh, of, of stories um, and be there at the right moment, you know, just put yourself five minutes ahead of whatever thing was about to happen. That's a classic, classical TV show. Mm -hmm. that's, that's in the line of the TV shows that I grew up watching like Magnum P.I. or uh, Hill Street Blues or... Um, or the X Files, in which the case of the week wasn't, you know, a four-letter word. That's not. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. It was the very structure of all the best TV we grew up watching, a tried and true uh, recipe. And so, for that reason, it wasn't a movie. It wasn't. It, this was. This was a. This was a television show. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and tell me before I and I want to bring you in, Greg, because I'm sure you got involved very quickly after this. But um, tell me a little bit about making these characters characters. I mean, it would have been very easy coming at this story from a philosophical level, that it, making it a polemic. But it's clearly not. Sure. These are characters that people love and that you guys must enjoy writing. Yeah, I think we, we want to look past it. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's um, important to note that one of the things I was excited about working in television was the collaborative aspect of mm -hmm. it. So, you know, ha having... Having a, a bit of a sense for an idea of the world in which the show could take part, some of the characters, this is the easiest part. I mean, the pilot is literally, you know, in success, less than 1% of the show. Greg and I started working together very, very early, and so this show really represents, you know, not, not just our collaboration together, building these characters in this world, but then the larger writer's room that we build mm -hmm. into it. This is why I wanted to do it. It's a collaborative, you know, 
art form. I used to wander around Warner Brothers by myself, writing movies and kind of talking to myself. And and, and we, you know we get to build all of all of this together, which is which has been great fun and been the best part of the experience. Was it a, a tough me. learning curve for you? Well, the nice thing was, was collaborating with Greg, who had worked in television for 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 many years. I mean, you spent your career in television, uh, and and it was still a bit of a learning curve for both of us, <laughs> primarily because we were shooting in in New York, yeah. writing you here, have that shooting extra, in New York. On, on top of not having worked in television yourself. <laughs> You've made production really difficult. <laughs> no one, no one told us. And, and, and if there was a moment in which, in, in which Greg uh, felt like telling me that you couldn't make a TV show this way, uh, we just, we just figured, well, well, fuck it. Let's go see if we can shoot the whole thing like a movie, and see if if we can get away with that week to week. Um, and no one told us not to, so we just did it, and it's worked out. Yeah. It's worked out pretty well. We yeah. we, we figured if you were going to sh- go to the trouble of shooting in New York, and the pilot was always set in New York, mm-hmm. and it was something that, you know, that the studio and network were always uh, uh, adamant about with us that it had to be New York. We have to find a way to make it work mm-hmm. um, because that's the center of surveillance in, in in our country. It's the natural home for it, and it's the best people watching in the world. I mean, that's ultimately what the show is about—that voyeuristic aspect to it. But shooting there, we thought. We wrote, you know, we wrote all this stuff, and you think, okay, well, you know, exterior of Sixth Avenue or exterior of Central Park, and then we figure we get to New York, and we're like, okay, guys, that's nice. Uh, let's let's show you a little park that we found for you, Staten Island, where you can shoot all your. But but they they let us shoot everywhere. It was it was that's madness. Great. That's great. Uh, they still let us shoot almost everywhere. Yeah. Um, so Craig, tell us how you got involved. Was was this matchmaking? Did you guys know each other before? How did how did it all work out? What is your background as a TV writer? Uh, no, we actually didn't know each other prior. Um, we, we met, um, it, it, I don't know if you call it kismet, because we both have older brothers named Chris. Uh, and somehow, Jonah uh, wound up going to a high school where my father once taught, so I thought maybe maybe something was, was destiny, or maybe recovering Catholic uh, school graduates <laughs> as well. But um, we, yeah, I grew, you know, it's interesting, I didn't come... Uh, I've sort of run the gamut now. I, I, my initial interest in television was, it was actually sitcoms and then hmm. sort of evolved into dramedies and then eventually uh, what became known as procedurals. They were virtually known as procedurals back then. I don't know when they coined the phrase, but uh, then that sort of evolved into a dirty word because it became like, okay, well, we have the flagship and the spinoff, and I think people started thinking of them as like, oh, they came out with new Coke. Who gives a shit? Um, and I think what's weird for me about that is uh, when it when I really fell in love with television writing, uh, NYPD Blue and NER were, were the two of the top shows on television. I thought two of the best written shows in broadcast television. Um, and I loved it. I just loved I loved that form of, of television. So I've always sort of approached uh, writing or dramatic narrative almost from a television writer standpoint. And whereas Jonah had almost come completely from screenwriter standpoint when I learned very early to stop telling Jonah we can't do this crazy <laughs> nonsense because... Somehow we, we, we wound up flipping and blowing up a car on fire in the yeah. middle of New York and no one blinked and we got away with it. So once that happened, I was like, okay, I guess I can't really, you know, it's really interesting. After the pilot, on, you know, we had all our interstitial sort of uh, surveillance point of view cameras, the MPOVs, and people watch the, the pilot and they go, yeah, this is really great. Can, can we just take out all those... <laughs> those shots, like those, you know, fisheye lens, that high, high angle, and it just sort of became like, well, eventually people 
that became like a signature of the show, and you almost expect it. And what made it made the show look different. And these are all ideas that, that Jonah brought visually to the table uh, that I didn't think you could do and, and, keep, and maintain people's interest. And it really, it really has evolved into sort of our trademark on the show. And we continue to continue to do that in terms of uh, the MPOB, but also sort of like um, what we call the soup or. or in terms of going into flashback and timelines and things like that, and that nature and understanding the machine's machine's brain, uh, all this stuff is fun. I, and we continue to try to find ways going into the next season where we can evolve the show and the evolution of a new machine as well. Do you think that stuff that you can kind of play with the cinematic language of it because you are, you know, at heart dealing with a pretty straightforward story? Sometimes straightforward. Well, I don't know how straightforward. <laughs> week to week. Depends, depends on the episode. Uh, well, what started out is about mythology in a minute. But you know that that's so interesting because you have the engine still. You can say the number of the week that comes up, and uh, I always, you know, it seems so logical now in hindsight when you feel if someone wants to kill themselves, they're gonna they're gonna Google how they can do it first. Mm-hmm. So you would understand almost that this is almost inevitable in the same ways that you know the Prison of the Snowden revelations came out and that became something we want. But before that, those revelations came out, we kept being approached with the sci-fi aspects of the show, and now it's sort of, that's almost like a given, so then, now... It's not fine anymore. Yeah, it's not fine anymore. No. So here's what's crazy. Initially, a show about uh, the surveillance state, or an Orwellian surveillance state, you can imagine, um, with, you know, the engine of, of the number of a week has now evolved into something whereby it's increasingly about artificial intelligence, and the emergence of perhaps multiple artificial intelligences. So, like, we can always find ways to expand the show out from here, and I think that's sort of been the fun of it for me, is it feels fresh still. It feels, it, we feel excited to come in, and every time we, we have apprehension or anxiety about burning through story, we just do it, and then we wake up with a hangover the next day and say, <laughs> now what? And we figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out where we're going next. And uh, I have to say, uh, for me, it's been a, a very rewarding collaboration. Uh, I'm extremely grateful for Jonah bringing me in in the beginning, and had a chance to really watch the show evolve too and it's amazing to me now even when I look back first couple episodes and and where it is now and the level of sophistication even visually the way it looks it just seems like we get to cram more and more story and somehow we pull it off well let's let's talk about that evolution for a minute when did you and how did you guys start to realize what this show was and what it could be and that you could make those big moves uh, I mean, is, is the room that you guys put together in season one fairly the same as it is now? Yeah, we had a, we, we've had great luck in terms of, you know, finding, finding fantastic people, for, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and bringing them in. We sort of had a no assholes allowed policy. Um, and so we found great people who play, play well with each other. The, the writer's room was part of the, my, my wife has worked in television for, 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 for many years, and I watched her experience <clears throat> in the writers' room, and it was something I was very jealous of. When you're writing in features, you may collaborate with other writers, you know, but it's a serial collaboration instead of a parallel collaboration. You get fired, and they hire someone else, and that person rewrites you, or you get hired to rewrite someone else, and and they time it very carefully so that you're never in the hotel at the same time. You know, they'll yeah. they'll kick out the guy they just fired to hire you, and then they put you in you know a couple hours. There's a little buffer. You never talk to them. So they're like unicorns. You know, other feature writers don't communicate with each other. <laughs> Collaborate with my brother on, on projects, but we write in in serial rather than parallel. Yeah. And we'll talk occasionally, you know, about up front, but then he's usually shooting the last thing while I'm writing the next thing. Mm-hmm. This, this place, this is where I wanted to be. 
I love writing features, and I, I hope I spend my entire career writing features, but the idea of getting to collaborate with other really smart people and other writers, I mean, that's such fun. And so from the beginning, we didn't have we didn't have a sense. Greg and I talked as we went off to New York to shoot the pilot. You have to you you submit the pilot along with a document that details six possible episodes, mm-hmm. and then you know, and and you have to be. I mean, the, the time is so short that you have to be thinking. Um, I, I've likened the process uh, more than once to getting your tie caught in a shredder. Right. I sort of said to JJ, I said, well, what about the show? And JJ said, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And I called my agents on the drive home. Uh, they said, uh, okay, great. Well, that means, you know, you're going to go meet Peter Roth and Warner's TV. And, you know, and then, and then four years later, I'm like, what the, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> what, what just happened? Um, but from the beginning, Greg and I had started talking about, we talked about a lot of different shows, but we talked about shows like The X-Files, X-Files being a great example, a show that balanced a case of the week structure with a big, 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 big mythology. Um, because for us, it was this proposition, and we said it, we sort of codified it and said it over and over and over again from the beginning, which is that we didn't want to punish new viewers. Mm-hmm. So even four seasons in, if you, you, you've heard about the show, and it's like, ah, oh, that sounds kind of interesting, you don't want to have to watch 68 hours in order to, to, to catch up, because we're not bingeable anywhere. You can't afford to watch 68 hours. <laughs> iTunes costs you $120. Not that I'm dissuading anyone from doing it, but you know, I heard there's other ways too. <laughs> the you know the the um, the idea being we don't want to punish new viewers, but we wanted to reward viewers who came in week in week out. So for the first seven episodes, in those six episodes that we had to pitch basically, and for the most part, it was roughly the first six episodes. You know, we were building this mystery in season one of this character of Elias, right? And and I, I've always loved writing villains. They're so much more fun to write than heroes. Um, and so we knew from the beginning, and it was actually one of the questions that J.J. had asked from the beginning was, you know, there are obvious comparisons between this show and Batman. I've you know, worked in the Batman unit for 10 years and frankly wasn't quite ready to hang up my spurs in terms of dark vigilante stories. And that's kind of the essence of all superhero films. Ever slightly on the wrong side of the law, or very firmly on the wrong side of the law, and they're helping people one person at a time in unconventional. Uh, ten years of writing Batman movies, I'm very, very proud of those movies, but we never really got to do the moment where Batman swoops in and rescues an ordinary person. Because you have to get to a story, you got to get to the fucking you know massive you know you got to get to the Joker, you got to get to uh, Raj Al Ghul. So. For me, the show, as much as anything else, was an outlet to tell those those stories. Um, and so, from the beginning, we had a plan of tell tell an entertaining story of the week, but continue to further the you know the game and move the ball along in terms of this hopefully massive story that that we wanted to tell. And that story from the beginning was about artificial intelligence. So this is where we started. I had that 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 moment. Um, this is before Greg had come on the project, and I had gone in to pitch it. To, to Warner's again, and I'd read all the, all the, the, heard all the anecdotes, read all the stories about how you're not supposed to actually tell the executives what the, what the, what the show is actually about. It's like <laughs> pretend it's about something else, right? And we get to this point, and we're talking, we're having a good conversation. Peter's a very smart dude, and we're talking about the show, and and, and he's and he's asking me, he's like, well, what's it really about? And I had this moment where I thought to myself, oh my gosh, shit, this is where I'm supposed to make up something about how it's about this. And I said, well, Peter, look, it's about, it's about artificial intelligence and it's about this weird 
moment I think we're in in which we're just starting to realize that the data has been serving us to this point, but we're about to start serving the data. And that moment's probably going to be, it won't be the singularity, it won't be some giant, heady science fiction moment. It's, it's going to slip past us invisibly, right? You'll realize that your car drives your car more than you drive your car, and you won't have noticed. You'll realize that, you know, your boss became data at a point. It's going to happen invisibly. It's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's what I'm interested in. And Peter said, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and so, so, you know, where it's I... It's also got a dog. <laughs> I, said, I said, yes, and we'll get to a dog. <laughs> got that, too. Um, so, so then how did you guys start to balance pushing that ball forward on the big story or on the ideas behind the series versus the small stories, which are as interesting to tell? I mean, there's, there's a lot of story, right? There's a lot of story possibility. And you were lucky enough to get a bunch of episodes for, this, for the first season, and you've gotten, what, 22, 23 mm-hmm. each season since, mm-hmm. which is a lot of TV, yep. and it's a lot of opportunity. But it's also, I mean, I think people don't realize, even with having that many hours to write, you don't get to tell all the stories you want to tell. No. Um, so how did you guys start to find that balance and... and uh, we can get a little nuts and boltsy about how the room works too. How, how does the room? Does, does the room? <laughs> I don't room know. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> uh, I, I think what we've we've kind of evolved in a place where we found something that I think that works nicely. In terms, we never want to lose the franchise of the, of the number, the, the idea that the number comes up. But when we enter into these arcs, uh, we think it's helpful if you have like a three-four episode arc where. You know, the, the serialized content crescendos, and perhaps there's a fallout episode, perfect uh, case in point this year being, you know, when uh, Detective Carter's character, uh, when her character was, was killed and, and, and what happened after that. The, the choice we made from that point is let's, let's take a hard left at that point and let's introduce this idea that there's, you know, this incipient other uh, code, that just, there's this other entity out there that is attempting to accumulate the resources to build alternate machine and, and so we find ourselves able to sort of circle around and come back and then and shift people's attention to that other thing but they don't forget the, the past and then we can always you know what's really fun for me is uh, pulling uh, characters from even seasons prior where maybe you, you got a glimpse of them just one time and then all of a sudden they come back and that, that, that's re- really rewarding that sort of set up payoff type feeling but also I think um, you know it, it's interesting how, how much people when it comes to network television shows they become very proprietary about their characters these are our this is our family and if yeah. if, if one of them disappears they uh, sometimes they almost feel violated or they feel like how could you do that you can't do that on, on network television and I think one of the things Joan and I agreed from the very beginning is that this show has to remain uh, dangerous it has to have that element to it, it has to, we have to be able to surprise you mm-hmm. because we don't and if you get the feeling everything's going to be okay at the end of every episode then it just becomes, it, it, it's not television that's worth sticking with to a degree. It becomes something predictable. And I think that's where a lot of shows go wrong, and it's something we never want this show to be. So we find it really helpful to get in, you know, these sort of mini arcs, uh, also have, still have a case within the week, or maybe it's a, just a throwaway number. Like, I think we have one episode where Fusco had a number that was a supermodel, and there was like three beats of that story, but it becomes about something larger. There's a, we can take the serialized story, it can balloon from there, it can all about that. That could be a multi-episode arc if we need it to be. Uh, so it, 
the hard part is actually 23 episodes. It's a lot, and it's a lot, and not a long period of time. And to make every one of those compelling, and you know, from the moment I met this guy, it was like he was—he was always trying to grant ten pounds of story in a five-pound <laughs> bag, as he said. And, he, and we do it, and and somehow we pull it off in the streets of New York, and it—it it feels fresh, it feels dark, it still feels exciting. But I think the the other thing um, that's very critical to the success of this show is the tone and the tone and the there's an element of humor to it there's 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 a certain amount of cheekiness to our show sometimes that I think people really enjoy so even though you have a, a, some very dark characters here you have all of them sort of have uh, a twist in their past that's uh, somebody they lost or something they're not telling you and that that becomes very satisfying for the viewer when they we can we can evolve or excuse me we can um, unfold that as it goes and they can find out more about the backstories or be a flashback, but but also feeling like even though there is a certain amount of distance that all these characters like to keep from each other, there's an element of humor to it that we understand their their level of comfort with each other as well. Well, I think that's that goes a long way to getting people emotionally invested, which is why they have those reactions. Yeah, no, it's a trick. About. You can you can, and we learned this with the Batman movies, and we spent. You know, it makes me sad when people think of those films as dour or self-serious, or you know, we've probably more time working on the humor of those films. Mm-hmm. Than anything else, from Batman Begins onwards. I mean, my job was where can we, you know, where can we, uh, where can we weave in a little lightness or a little humor or a little whatever. Someone was pointing out that I was somewhat, somehow partially responsible for Prince Joffrey on Game of Thrones because, yeah, and I was like, how is that actor familiar? That actor is familiar for me. Um, now I've got to look him up. Now I've got to look, we, we're going to cut this out. So we pretend that I that I knew the actor's name. I feel terrible now. Um, and I was like, how the fuck do I know that guy? And then I realized that he, um, um, no, 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 it's all the fucking wikis from Jack Gleason. So Jack Gleason, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if he got to start, but the first time I saw Jack Gleason was I had written, I got airmailed into Batman Begins to, to, to do production, to do, you know, to work with Chris to continue to refine the script as they got closer to production. Because mm-hmm. we'd, we'd work, you know, we'd work together so often before that. It was a huge production. It was a massive production they were putting together. And, and uh, and so one of the things I did was I said I said um, well we're gonna you know we're gonna have like a kid in it you know we're gonna have a kid in there and you gotta have some humor they have plenty of great humor in there Chris is always very focused on that but I, I was yeah. helping punch up that aspect of it so I wrote this scene based on a buddy of mine's uh, experience growing up in Manhattan where his brother would babysit and occasionally he would dress up as Spider Man and climb back in through the fire escape and tell the kids to go to bed. I was like, that's awesome. Like, you were growing up in New York and Spider-Man would come in and tell you to go to bed and then one day they realized that he was wearing Ernie's sneakers and was like, why Spider-Man? Why are you wearing Adidas? It's like, oh shit. So we turned that into this scene of Batman Begins in which um, Prince, Prince Joffrey <laughs> is out on a fire escape and I'm like, I fucking knew I knew that guy from somewhere. So, uh, yeah, so, but we, we always spend an awful lot of time trying to weave humor into those films to whether it was successful or, or not. What I found doing that was that Rather than doing this kind of po-faced approach to like dark, darker, super dark, you actually trick. It's a trick. You trick the fucking audience. You get them to relax for a second, and it's like, oh, sweet a joke, and then boom, you go right in and take them to a darker place. You're you're sugaring the medicine. So we love writing the humor. We love putting a little warmth and lightness into it. When we got to the end of the or into the deep into the no, we were a few episodes in the second season, and 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 we were in New York, and and one of the critics who watches the show regularly was like. Um, Guys, you know, it's serious, cool, dark show, you know, relevant, contemporary. 
what's with the dog? What's going on with the dog thing? <laughs> it's like, no, you have to, you have to have all of these things. And Jonah walks in my house. He goes, I got it. <laughs> they get a dog, and I like get the hell out so of my house. Like, what are you talking that's about? Not, and, not, I, and, I, and then it's it, it even more brilliant. We found out that the network president uh, had a Belgian Malinois. Yes, and, and we figured. Well, if we get a Belgian Malinois, there's no way the network president can cancel her dog. We were on the phone, and, and someone from inside the network suggested it. So we, we were thinking it would be German Shepherd, and it was suggested fr- in a friendly way to us so we consider a Belgian Malinois. <laughs> it was explained that, that uh, so we, we loved it. But from the beginning, the idea has been you know, that, that you want... The, this is all the stuff that, to, that we like. We like to write humor, and we like to write dark stuff and to Greg's point you know what's happening in television which is really exciting is you have this massive wave of energy coming in from cable which is great these purely serialized um, incredibly ambitious shows novel like shows it's fantastic and, and um, we've used that taken taken from that energy this this fearlessness you know those shows burn story and of course the problem with that it's, it's appropriate for when you're doing you know, 10 to 13 episodes a year when you're doing five seasons. Fantastic. We've already done more episodes than any of those shows do in three years. And, and uh, you know, it isn't about quantity versus quality, but this is the broadcast model. This is what it is. This is the television we, we grew up watching. It was 22 to 23 hours, uh, hours a week. The, the great thing about this model, the, X, the X-Files model, I call it, although there are plenty of, of shows that followed it before the X-Files, but the X-Files did it very well, mm-hmm. was that... <clears throat> It's a, uh, a self-regulating mechanism that, that, that helps you defend against soap opera, right? Because when we write an episode, if we don't have anything we want to do in the B or C or D stories, like if we don't want to roll the character along, if we don't have anything to do, we don't have to do anything. We just tell a story of the week, do a tiny little movement. So it, it helps your larger mythological story from, from you know, collapsing into soap opera. Yeah. Because we don't have to fill an hour every week with, you know, oh shit, the twin sister came back in and is trying to sleep with the mom. Is doing it. it's like there's a place for that. That's fine. And there are shows and people love those shows. That's great. Um, but we don't know how to write that. And so when we make a move in our B, in our in our serialized story, in our, in our mythology, we can do it whenever we want. We can time it the way we want to, and we can hopefully have a huge impact with the audience because they never know what they're going to get. If they, hopefully in a good way. They're going to tune in, they'll get a self-contained story. Well, they're always going to get some aspect of self-contained story. We've always stuck to that discipline. But every once in a while, they'll tune in and get what they think is an ordinary self-contained story, and they just get hit you know, uh, out of nowhere with a big chunk of story. We love, we love doing that. We love making moves and keeping people kind of on their toes. Because that's the kind of TV that I, I love to watch. Well, and you guys do it really deftly, too, I will say. I mean, you never, that, that mythology story never feels tacked on. It always feels intrinsic, even to the episode itself, or to the series of episodes, which is not easy to do, having worked on those shows. <laughs> uh, uh, but let's talk about some of that mythology stuff. Uh, we're coming up on the season finale. Uh, is Did this season, this is season three, is that right? Season mm-hmm. three. Ending season three. Did this season wind up the way you guys thought it would when you were talking about it a year ago? I think we got to be somewhat careful what we tip here because people won't, they won't have seen the finale when Not this is on Tuesday night. So right, this tonight. Is gonna, this is going to go tonight. up on Tuesday, the day of our yes. finale. Day so of our watch finale. it tonight. Yeah, we won't give anything away. 
<laughs> if you are going to watch it tonight and you don't want to be spoiled, leave the room now. Okay, you can talk about things. Uh, well, certainly, um, uh, we did know where uh, we were headed in terms of the emergence of the, of the new machine. The question, mm -hmm. the question was, how were we going to get there? And, and, and what were the entities sort of competing to bring this thing about? And, and, and who was trying to stop it? And I think that is where the real fun has come in. Uh, well, let me, let me interrupt you even there. You know, you knew you wanted to bring this new machine in. Mm. Was this something you had thought about in earlier seasons? Was this something that had been pushed, and, and did the time just feel right, and why was it not? Um, we talked about an awful lot of ideas for where the show is going to go. And I think with television, you know, from the, I, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. So from the beginning, you know, Greg and I have sort of collaborated on this point of, okay, we... We know when you go in to pitch the show, the the, the you know the, the network president will ask you, so where is this all going? What's the finale, right? Um, and uh, at one of these meetings, uh, I did I did wind up pitching the finale, um, and 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 uh, it was very surprising to some people <laughs> in the room who sort of said, well, no, but that, that that's where it's going. And I thought this is why this is. This is going to be a great finale. So you have a couple of waypoints in along the way. And so Greg and I have been talking nonstop from the beginning as we were shooting the pilot and onwards about where does this go? What are the things we have in mind? We had some ideas in mind, but you have to be flexible. I mean, the great thing about these shows are a journey. You, know, you work with an actor, and then sometimes they become unavailable. And sometimes, you know, the, the story gets led sometimes by that. But we've had great luck kind of calling our shots from the very beginning about this is where we're going. And I think the only question for us has then become, as we, as we sit down and we'll start sitting down in a, in a month or so to talk about season four, we've already started those conversations. Yeah. It I really assume that, that those even start in the room when, when you guys were... Oh, 100%. Yeah, we try to get those right. You know, and, and, and so the question becomes not what, yeah. but when. Mm -hmm. We know we know what a lot of, you know we know where, we, where this is going from the beginning. The question is, well, when when do we get there? Do we get there this season? Maybe we hold off on that beat just a little while longer. Um, you know, it's you, you know you're in one chapter of the story, um, and sometimes you want to spend a little extra time, you know, in sort of hanging out with the characters. And there's almost a bittersweet aspect to it because you know, I mean, we had this with with Taraji's character this year. We, we set in motion this plan a year ago to build towards this 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 tragic moment. Mm -hmm. Not because we felt like we needed to compete with the sort of cable kill everyone, you know, but because it's, you know, because we wanted to tell an, an engaging story, as Greg said, with stakes. We wanted, we, you know, we wanted to, 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 you know, respect the fact that we had plunged our characters in this very dangerous world. We said in the pilot, you know, Finch says to Reese, if we keep doing this, we'll probably wind up dead. And they will, mm -hmm. right? And it's just a question of when. Yeah. And, and how, you know, whether they get a chance to negotiate those terms themselves or whether they get broadsided by it. So we, we have a plan. It accounts for sometimes you find an actor you get excited about, you write the storyline a little longer. Sometimes you realize that, you know, if you do all of the moves that you're talking about in one episode, then they won't quite have the same impact. So you parse things out a little bit. Um, but for the most part, we've had a fairly deliberate approach, and, mm -hmm. and for me, that was the only way to get into it was to say, you know, it almost felt like you had a responsibility to the audience that if they're investing their time, that you you had to have had an obligation to invest your time in the beginning to give them somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. This isn't all adding up to nothing, and that this isn't all some something we thought up but dreamt up at the last minute. 
Um, the flip side of that is you have to be careful not to wedge yourself and lock yourself to ideas that are no longer relevant to the audience or no longer you know, relevant to the characters and, and, and see that the journey has changed a little bit along the way. And so how did you guys course correct as you went along in this season? Well, you know, you can feel at certain moments when you're treading water and I think the audience even can, can tell. So we always want to feel like we're, we're taking people somewhere. Where are we going with this with, without going off the rails? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the trick. And you, if you have a couple of larger storylines spinning dip into one for two, three episodes and spin out into another one, you know, whether it's talking about a vigilance, introduction of an entity like that, and the emergence of Decima, and the pursu- what they're pursuing, the accumulation of the resources, and, the, and, resources and, and then determining at what point do these entities come into conflict. And you start to get a lot of plates going, and the idea for us, I mean, we didn't have a, a tremendous amount of, um, Elias didn't come back uh, this year, but, but we to a good large extent, you know, I think we had one or two episodes we had him in, but he's a character we love, and it was like, you know, he was, he was, you know, a, a linchpin for us in that, that second season, uh, in finding ways um, to develop story. I think we still want to be able to come back to something like that, but then you start to wonder, like, how far have we, have we moved away from that storyline? Is the audience still compelled by it? They, do they want that character? And, and, the, and it's weird, because they, they kind of let you know, too. Hmm. They let you know when, sure. when, the, when they're intrigued by a certain, uh, way you're going and then they try to predict and then we can't do that we have to do something else so that's happened too uh, yeah, our fans are pretty well, prescient you're respect. saying the machine knows more than you do a little bit <laughs> the machine will tell us how, how the story ends hopefully yeah, soon absolutely so when do you guys I mean obviously you're aware of the conversations going on there uh, going on out there about the show with the fans with, uh, yeah a, a passionate fan base sure um, and as you're talking about you want to keep them interested you want to keep the stakes really you want to keep on their toes. Um, how do you balance fan service with making the show that you want to make with making the shows that the writers want to make? I, I think I think it's a it's a really good question and it's a very um, it's a question that's gotten more and more complicated even over the last ten years. Yeah. So when you see you know J.K. Rowling hiring on people who work in that community, George R. R. Martin working with people and and, and and you know that that line between fan and author has in, in all kinds of glorious interesting ways been crossed and changed and you know and and whether it's 50 shades of gray or any of these properties where something you, that that wonderful burst of creativity where something you know inspires someone to create something else I mean, it's a really fun moment but i think you have to be extremely careful not to get into the business of fan service right we'll throw in a moment here there is a nod or a joke or a, or, or a wink to our fans, who we dearly love and who support, you know, on, on which the future of the show rests. I mean, those are the folks who stick with you. If they, if they move your time slot, if they push you around, if they, you know, uh, you know, th- those are the folks who are ultimately, you know, um, sticking with the show, and, and you have to respect that. But you can't let that drive the bus, um, because as Greg said, I mean, there's an interesting moment that happens when you get even a season in or half a season in, where all of a sudden the audience's investment in these characters outweighs. Not your own, but the ownership. The ownership stakes change a little bit. Every season it feels like, you know, there's a bit of a, uh, 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 some kind of annual rewards program in which the fans get more and more of a percentage ownership (laughs) of, you know, more and more stock (laughs) in in your creative endeavor every year. And that's as it should be. I mean, sometimes they know the the series better than you do. Um, uh, And certainly they can be more invested in it. I mean, you know, 
So you, you, you have to be very mindful of that. But the truth is, and it's a fine line to know, and working in films, we never had this problem because by the time you put the film in the right. theaters, it either sucks or it doesn't. There's nothing you can do to course correct. In a franchise, I worked in a film franchise for a while, you know, you can hear or take on board some, but it's like, it, it, it's all, you know, it, 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 it's, all, it's all somewhat counterproductive. I think first and foremost, what we've been led by in writing the show is a, is a very, you know, whether fans love or hate, um, and even the term fan, I kind of have a problem with it, but the, peop the people who are watching the show, whether they lo love a move or, you know, or hate it, you know, they should know, and, and this is all the business this year with Detective Carter, you know, it provoked a lot of passion in people, which you're very excited and proud of, but, you know, but also, you know, you feel for people who feel like, you know, there's, they feel betrayed by the narrative, or they feel that, you know, that, that, that that decision was led by anything other than the following impulse, that we were excited about it here in this room, that passed the test, what Greg calls the sort of the the, the sort of the, the, uh, the shiver test. And we, we apply it when it comes to putting music. Greg and I are also the auxiliary uh, um, un, un, uh, uh, or amateur music uh, supervisors for the show, the unofficial music supervisors for the show. And we always use the, sorry, the chill test. You use the chill test to set, you Those know, you're geniuses. They're brilliant, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll lay a song down on an episode, sometimes a few different songs, um, and you're waiting for the one that gets you to go, ooh, like that. Mm -hmm. And it's the same principle when it comes to story. You know, yeah. someone will come in here, we encourage our writers to come in here and be heretics. Come in and pitch something that's fucking bananas, that, that totally wipes out, you know, a, a season's worth of planning. It's the, if it's the best idea, if it passes that chill test, and not just in the irresponsible way of doing shit for the sake of doing right. shit, but if it takes our narrative in a direction that is unexpected and cool, fresh, mm -hmm. um, and that sets up questions uh, that are irresistible or situations that are irresistible, you know, that, that's where we're guided by. We're guided by whether we would enjoy the show, whether we would be excited by the show. We don't give a shit what, you know, what, what with all due respect, don't give a shit what the network wants us to do with it or, I mean, you know, or, or the studio or the folks who watch the show or the critics. As soon as you start getting led around by that, you lose, you lose sight of the only yardstick you have in this business is... Do I like it? And would I watch it? And ultimately, that's what people are responding to anyway, is the vision that you guys put forth in this show. When it had no viewers, it, it was the same show. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's what get people excited about it. It's it just has to feel fresh. It has to feel exciting. Yeah. You, gotta, you, you want to surprise people. And I think, you know, we have whole websites developed, you know, devoted to television tropes. We all know what they are. And, you know, find ways to subvert that. But I think... You know, I want my mom to be able to enjoy the show too. And if we can, it's like there's, it's amazing because I sort of watched the evolution of this whole online like re, re, dissecting the episode, reviewing it, rating it, all this stuff. And this sort of came, it started right when I was on Blue. I was like, there was hardly anybody writing anything like this. And then now it's like if there's like an industry built around it. And, it, and it's if you write to that, uh, I think you get yourself in trouble. I think I think what happens is I, the, the analogy I always use is like it's like asking my wife where she wants to go to dinner instead of surprising her. It's like people want to go out to dinner, they just don't want to already know what it is. They want you to go, oh, this is oh, I've never had this food. This is a great restaurant. You know, it's fantastic. And then Greg, that's will, exciting. will you tell me where my wife and I should go to dinner? <laughs> <laughs> this guy drives all over the city to go to like a new restaurant. Much more variety in his life. But 
I think that's it. It's like it's kind of like people were telling us in the beginning, like, oh, I want to know who Finch's backs. I need to know where Reese. It's like, no, you don't. You don't. You actually want to think about it. You want to, you want it to remain an element of mystery, and you want to be surprised when we finally do tell you, and then it becomes that much more rewarding. That much. I mean, we just uh, did the episode where, you know, uh, Michael Emerson's character Finch uh, crosses on the bridge with Carrie Preston actual wife uh, who plays his fiance on the show and I think a lot of people are thinking oh this is the moment where she realizes he's alive and it's like well no, no it isn't and it doesn't have to be to be just as rewarding and more intriguing and now you, I feel like you know people are even more so are, are wondering will, will that moment ever actually transpire for his character I think that's, will, that's will it Craig will it? I don't know <laughs> you can tell um, we started to talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of the room how many writers do you guys have your question. We're writer, writing General. entities about nine uh-huh. and a, I don't more plus. Well, if you include us, I know. Uh, yeah, around that's, there. That's a pretty big room. Yeah. But we've all done that's a lot of episodes. Um, so, how does it work? Uh, I know you guys send your writers to set generally, uh, which is in New York. Um, who's in the room? Who's out of the room? How are stories getting broken? Once the train starts going, how are you guys keeping on top of that? Well, I think, you know, sort of system we set up in, in place here is that Joe and I want to. Uh, franchise all the writers to become producers on the show it, it doesn't do us any good if, if we have to do everything and, and I think it's really important you know we have writers break up in, in rooms four or five people they break out an episode uh, we try to bring it in here into the big room uh, do a punch up if we can uh, and they're doing a, a kind of a beat by beat breakdown absolutely on the, on the board and I think I think Joe and I are in agreement it's like we want to we want to know exactly what that story is when it comes off the board because uh I've worked on shows where I've written three entirely different episodes, scripts for one episode of television, and it's extremely frustrating, and I don't think you're going to get the best work out of the writer. I think um, the reason we send them to the set is just for, for the sake of continuity, for someone to understand that this is, this is what the intent was of the writer. There, there is a resource for the director on the set, but just to make sure that, that we're getting what we want back here, and then uh, we, we, we put the episode up in the, in the room. We all watch the director's cut. Oh, really? Yeah, and we all, we all give notes on it. And then we'll send the writer into post to cut their own episode, and then Jonah and I will come in. So it's like, eventually, which one of the reasons I think we, we've maintained the continuity we have in our staff is that they feel enfranchised, mm-hmm. but they're, you're not moving up where you're getting a guild-mandated bump in your title and you're a co-EP who's never been on a set or never been in post. No, we have mid-level people that can do that on our show. And they're all really capable people, and and honestly, it takes a load off of, of Jonah and myself because uh, I don't know many shows that have this level of intensity in terms of cutting action, uh, graphics, and visual effects, and all the things that we that go we add into the show to give it that sort of polished cinematic look. Uh, we can't do it all; it's impossible. So I think you know it's been extremely helpful for us that we've we found some people that have really stuck and understand the show and the DNA of the show and, and remember you know it really helps too that just all this these people you see the wall of dead behind you and all the other people just just, just the, the timeline that we've come up with in terms of remembering what happened when yeah. uh, is, is extremely important to how we move forward on this show um, I should ask uh, you didn't because you didn't create the show though you've been here since the beginning um, you know we've talked about what what buttons are getting pushed for you, John, in this show. Uh, as something that's, you know, not necessarily your baby, but your adopted baby, uh, 
Uh, right. What what buttons is it pushing for you? What joys? What particular joys are you getting from this show? I think for me, uh, the, the the thing I really love is that it's a broadcast television show that, that really is about something. It's about something extremely thought provoking, uh, something that sticks to your ribs. You can be totally entertained by the show. Uh, it doesn't feel didactic, but it's introducing some very big ideas and big issues that we're all dealing with in regards to technology, surveillance, and then the emergence of AI. Mm -hmm. And I think those are extremely cool, interesting subject matters that uh, I feel, you know, there's something that I can hold my head up and say, I'm, I'll always be proud to work on this show. Uh, and it it's, feels great. It feels great to be here. I, I've written on uh, numerous television shows. Uh, and, and I got to a point even, you know, in my career where I didn't have to take a job and I could take the show that I wanted to do. And when, and when, when Jonah, you know, presented this idea to me, I was like, wow, this, you know, feels like a feature. And then we realized that the outline he initially showed me was like probably five, six episodes. <laughs> and we eventually did, did unpack that sucker and use oh, all yeah, those ideas. Sure. And it just, it just, but it's, what it speaks to, I think, is it speaks to... Uh, the power of the initial idea that, that Jonah came up with and, that, and the amount of legs it had mm -hmm. and the amount of the room it had to grow. And I, and it's, I think that's the problem with, where people smell it. Sometimes on a broadcast show where it starts to feel tired or they've told this story or now they're just making widgets. And, uh, and I don't feel like I'm making widgets, so I can stick around as long as we keep doing that. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah it feels like you've, you've baked in not just this engine, but because there's an idea behind the show. There's a philosophy here. It, it can be this many tentacle thing. You know, you can take this left turn whenever you want. Totally. Uh, what have been some of the surprises for you, uh, even in this past year? <laughs> well, it's the, the, the fun of this enterprise. I mean, you know, I think Greg was being diplomatic in his description of it earlier. I think that, you know, 23-episode-a-year order is like a controlled plane crash. I mean, it's 205-plus days of continuous production in City, it's the writers, you know, that, that first, that, I'll tell you one, one surprise, first season, my, my wife, I worked in television, and one of the things that was exciting to me was this, this concept of a hiatus, sort of broadcast <laughs> TV show, even a, even a broadcast TV show, you get, you know, the writers, you typically get like six weeks off, it's awesome, you go on vacation, you go on safari, and I've been a feature writer for, for the better part of 15 years, and had never had a vacation because you never have any idea where you know the next year you could be on a production rewrite or you you know maybe your your spec got picked up and you're in you have no idea what's going to be happening next year so for for many many years my wife and I totally unable to take a vacation so we sell this TV show and Chris is off making the Dark Knight Rises and and that script was largely written and I thought this is going to be awesome we're going to get a six week it's going to be incredible for <laughs> me what I hadn't considered was that that's not the, that's the case for the writers. It's the case for the editors. It's the case for the actors. Here's who it's not a case for, the showrunners. <laughs> so Greg and I, this is awesome. We get to the end of the first season. We've shot a pilot, you know, sort of writing a pilot, you know, with, with walking pneumonia in December of 2010. It gets picked up. We roll straight into production of the pilot, totally bananas, most insane pilot production experience ever. Uh, then we get back, we get picked up, fantastic, hire a bunch of writers. Basically, we're, we've been going for about 18 months. And then we get to May of 2012, I guess, and, uh, and, or, or April or something like that. I'm like, here comes the hiatus. It's going to be amazing. So uh, one, of our, one of our executives at the studio sends over uh, the proposed, we get picked up for season two, fantastic, this is amazing. We get the schedule sent over 
for the proposed production, proposed production schedule for a season two. And it's taped, Courier brings it over, and it's taped to a bottle of scotch. And the instructions from staff read, um, drink the scotch, then read the schedule. And so that this, this hiatus that I'd heard so much about uh, uh, for years, between season one and season two of the show, as originally proposed, the hiatus was negative two days. What that means is we would start reconvening the writer's room two days before, before locking sound mm-hmm. on the season finale for the previous season. And I just thought, and I see these dreams of like an African safari vaporized. So I'm like, wait a second, wait, we just done 18 months of this. You know, we're just going to roll straight into doing another 12. And so eventually Greg and I kind of went on strike and, uh, and, and insisted on taking five days off. Uh, and it would, that, was, that was definitely a shocker, was realizing that, you know, it's this kind of classic, be careful what you wish for. I mean, here's, you know, here's this network and studio getting behind your vision for a show in a huge way and you find yourself thinking all I want to do is all I want to do I remember my wife and I went to Hawaii or something like that and we got down to the beach and I slipped on a rock and fell over she ran over and she said are you okay are you okay and I was and I, I was and I was kind of kind of curled up in pain she's like are you alright are you alright and I said I said I'm so I'm so fucking tired <laughs> And that was it. I mean, it was just, just exhausting. So excited to have a baby. Definitely make it worse. No, absolutely. Oh uh, no, that was the surprising part of it. But, but also, this, I, mean, I guess the other surprise for me, and I don't know about you, Greg, but I mean, you know, I'd seen how I'd heard all the crazy stories, and certainly it was every bit as exhausting as I could possibly have imagined, but I could not have imagined, I was incredibly surprised, how much fun and how rewarding it was. All these amazing people you get to collaborate with, whether it's the writers here, the actors in New York, the DPs, the directors, the, the costume department, hair and makeup. I mean, it, it's it's an incredible privilege, and it's very different than the film business. And I, I love the film business. The film business is a little broken right now. You know, you can have a project. I have projects in development, and and, and you know, I'm assured they're in. You know, they're they're they're. they're you know, they're a high priority for the studio. They've been developing for like 10 years. I mean, getting all the stars to align to get a film made. Um, we have a film coming out later this year that, that, that I've been working on now for eight years. I mean, these things take forever. And television, the fun of it is, we've had scenes that we shot, additional scenes that we shot that aired seven days later. I mean, you just go. Yeah. You go, you, you, you know, you, it's, it's the what do you got problem, uh, which, is, which is very cool. Um. Do you guys, I just have a couple more questions, but uh, we should have asked this before. As much as you empower the writers, do you guys touch every script? Does it go through you? Do you guys do much rewriting? But we touch it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hurl across the room. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, Joan and I, I think more of our input comes in almost at the story level in terms of shaping the story and understanding where we want it to go. And certainly uh, every, every last draft will we'll go through one of our computers, but I think, you know, we, we like the, the writers to carry it as far, you know, as possible to the finish line. Well, and I actually think on the first season, we definitely, you know, almost reflexively um, got, got in there and, 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 and touched, if not, you know, didn't rewrite, but touched. We, we've been blessed from the very beginning with some very talented, preternaturally gifted writers who very, very quickly found the, t- the tone of the show, built the tone of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ran with it. First season, I think we were probably much more heavy-handed, much more, you know, sort of overwriting and things like that. Although, you know, we often had scripts that came in that were just, you know, that were 
was fantastic. Um, but as, and this is one of the things I'm most proud of with the show, as the seasons have gone by, you know, there's room there. Uh, you know, I, I, my wife and I had a baby this year, and um, you know, and, and so I was out of the out of the out of the room for 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 a few weeks and teleconferencing in and 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 talking about the big moves that the story would make, but then really getting a chance to watch episodes that I hadn't been as, mm-hmm. as aggressively involved in from the beginning. And I thought, oh, this is a really good show. I like this. <laughs> and that's very exciting when you see this this thing take on kind of this life of its own where you know writers will come in with a kick-ass idea that they turn into a kick-ass script that they bring back as an excellent episode that they then cut into a, a, a great cut. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's terribly exciting. Sure. Um, Are there a particular story challenges to this show and to the story <coughs> that you guys are telling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I said it was, you, you have to feel, I think the audience has to feel like you're taking them somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's always the challenge, to make, to make that larger story arc not feel predictable as well. So it mm-hmm. feels like, well, this is exciting. I didn't, I didn't see that coming and left turn there or the introduce, introduction of a villain or whatever it is. It has to feel fresh. It has to feel different. And I think, you know, as Jonas said, it, it has to excite us, or we just don't want to. We don't want to write it, you know. Yeah. And and I think each of the writers here has a, a different sort of thing that they're all good at. Some of them are better on set than you know on the page, or some are better on the page. And, and it it just it just depends. And I think we do a, a really nice job of pulling that out of each of them. And and, and um, it just becomes really rewarding. Rewarding when, when they feel confident that they've got the show. So, like maybe the only thing Joan and I would do would be like, let's show up this act break, or or this doesn't sound like that character. They'd say this, or you, you know, you, you got the predictable line. Let's have them say something totally crazy in this moment to keep to keep it exciting and fun. You mentioned what the different writers bring to the party. Uh, you guys, you know, despite having a great core group. You must have hired new writers last year. I'm sure you'll be hiring some this year if you haven't already. What do you look for? Uh, what do you look for when you're reading spec? What do you look for in that initial meeting? Cash. <laughs> yeah, the kickback. The kickback. You know, I think Greg and I converge on this a lot. I mean, there, there are three components to it. I mean, for, for folks who are, who are breaking into the business, who are... Who are you know, sitting there writing their specs. I think for, for us, to the degree it's helpful, and I think every every showrunner is different, but for us it's kind of three things. It's a, Ideally, you're seeing a spec in which they've been able to capture the voice of a show that you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and that is... You tend to read specs of existing shows rather than original? You want both. Honestly, you want both. Uh, ideally. I agree. Yeah. Uh, because you want to see, you want to see, one, that someone can write to someone else's voice, because frankly, that's the job. But two, you also want to know, do they have anything to say? If you let them rip and you say, hey, let's go do a very special episode or what do you got, they're going to come back, especially with our show, in which the show really, you know, the show becomes the person of interest. It becomes their world for, you know, you're sucked into their world for a week. So, okay, give me a compelling world. Give me a world that I don't know about. Give me a world set within New York City that maybe nobody knows about. Uh, and so the original can speak to that. And then, frankly, with the original, I mean, I know for, for myself, what I'm looking for, not in flashy, stupid ways, but you're just looking for a fucking voice. You're looking for someone who has, you know, who has a voice that pops off the page. I mean, we have one of our writers who's an extremely, and I won't, I won't embarrass him by name, but one of our writers is extremely friendly, you know, straight, straightforward, not, not retiring, but certainly, you know, not the loudest voice in the room. But, you, you know, we read his, 
his um, his original pilot, and the writing was fucking incandescent and lurid and filthy. And Frank, I don't even know if I finished <laughs> it. it; was so disgusting. But it was a it was a voice, and you just thought, oh, this this guy can fucking write, and it didn't have to be the same as the voice of our show. For the original, that wasn't important. And then the last part of it is you sit down with them. You know, first it's got to be done on the page, and then you sit down with them, and you're trying to get a sense quickly that you want to be in a room. And this is something Greg emphasized from the beginning because I didn't know better. But but you know, we knew, and I, I'd seen through friends' experiences that you want that that writers room to be harmonious. You know, we got big personalities in here, but they're all very generous with each other. So you're looking for someone who can listen as much as they talk. But if you're going to distill it down to anything else, and some of the, you don't mind being locked in a room with for 12 hours at a stretch. Yeah, and I, you know I've been on staffs where you find that that writer who's playing the zero sum game, or even a consultant, and it's it, it's really frustrating. It becomes cancerous where it's like they're all about their episode, and then when it comes time and you've given all contributions to them, and then all of a sudden you're looking for reciprocity, and it's just not there, and those people are gone. We get we we, we weed them out pretty quick, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, we've really done well in terms of people being generous on this show with their ideas. And it, it's interesting because I do think people, I hope, feel uh, a collaborative sense of, in terms of their contribution to this show because they really think we're, we all sort of are proud of it. And, like, the way you can sort of sniff it out pretty quick is, like, you know, you get an episode after one that just followed and you go, you realize they just played that beat in the prior episode, right? So right away I know you're not reading their outline. I know you probably didn't read their script and you're repeating the same thing. And it's like, we can't have that on this show. It, we, we just can't have it. And uh, I think we've, we've done an excellent job at this point of sidestepping a lot. We got, we got very lucky. We got a lot of writers who are very unflinchingly generous in here. And I think that's one thing with writers coming in the room. I don't, I don't know any better. I mean, I, you know, we read the showrunners. The showrunners... There, there is some literature from the Writers Guild about what a showrunner is supposed to do and not supposed to do, and you're supposed to write on every draft. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to take credit, and you're, you know, there, I mean, there, there's, you know, there, there, there's a sort of code of conduct there. But mm-hmm. I think for writers coming into the room, there are big questions in terms of like, you know, well, I've got a good idea and I should huddle on it and hold on to it. And what I've been surprised by and excited about with this group uh, that, that we've had from the beginning is everyone's been incredibly unflinchingly generous with their own material. They sort of understand. That's, that's what happens when you don't have any assholes in here. It's just good people. Is they understand? Okay, you know, I'm giving giving out the, the stuff I got here, and when I when it's my turn at bat, you know, I'm hoping I'm going to get it back, and it, and it, and 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 it does. You know, people are generous that way, and it all it all works out. There's a huge amount of teamwork that goes into every draft, but you know, these drafts are truly the product of that writer. You know, we 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 allow and encourage them to carry the carry the thing the, the whole way home. But, uh, well, it seems like you guys have gone out of your way to foster a mutual respect. So you, you wind up with this fairly well-adjusted group. Who knows what they do at home? But I Well-adjusted some dimensions. <laughs> I mean, very poorly adjusted. Them, yeah, <laughs> right. They play well with others. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, is the finale is tonight, the night this airs. Uh, is there anything that you guys want to say about the season finale? Uh... We just, we just like to apologize for killing off all those good actors. <laughs> oh, no we, we have a knack for that, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think the reason it, it keeps oh. happening is because we realize they care. <laughs> and so that no, it's it's always a tragedy. It's always the best of the bunch, where uh, where we've got you know Greg and I have to deliver these phone calls occasionally, and we have to deliver several of them for this episode, and it's it's a it's a heartbreaker when you find people who are incredibly talented. 
uh, with whom you like working, you know, the highest honor on this show is that we is that we, we, we bump them off. But it's always it's always sad when that happens, and we apologize to uh, to, to the viewers. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, my Clemson awesome fans. He'll he'll end up. <laughs> I hope he's um, just fine. And is there anything you can tell us about next season? I know it's super early, but you know, people will love. Well, you know, we were, we were excited. We've been excited about this. You know, I made a joke earlier in the year about the Good Wife and and, and Archer, both uh, kind of reinventing themselves in fun ways. You know, we uh, we never want as writers or our actors as actors or our viewers of viewers to become complacent. So there'll be some. Um, I mean, the, the the show essentially remains the show. We only blew up half of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, we'll, I, we'll take that. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, and finally, what are you guys watching on television? What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your, with each other, with your spouses, with the room? Uh, Veep right now. Uh, uh, no, I, you know what's funny is I find myself watching half-hour stuff, a lot of stuff mm-hmm. on HBO just because... When you want, when you work this many hours, you come home. Think, what do I got time to watch? It's gonna make me laugh before I go to bed. Whatever it is, and I hate to say that because I never want to equate television with just guilty pleasure. But um, sometimes uh, the long form stuff, it, it's harder for me to stay in the game. Uh, but I did. I, 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 I enjoyed True Detective. I did enjoy that this this past year, and um, I uh, I love he's bowed down too. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great show. Um, it's yeah. over though, right? It's done. It's done. I yeah. think, right? I think so. Yeah. They, they, I thought it was done one, and then they actually came back again. again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love. Uh, I really like Silicon Valley right now. That's I'm enjoying that too. No, so what I want to tell you about TV is you, you work on it, you never have any time to watch it. Um, I, I'm the same way as Greg. Half the time we're coming home, you just want to watch a half hour comedy, and and my, my wife is always asleep within about five five minutes of whatever it is we watch. Uh, but we we've been watching. Um, Game of Thrones, which which we've watched from the beginning and, and, and love, uh, Veep, very very funny show. And Louis back. Yeah. Oh, is that back on? Yeah. Back. Uh, well, it's great. Oh, oh, and before we wrap up, um, Interstellar is this year. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell us every single thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for uh, taking the time. Uh, it was great to finally talk to you. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you a lot too. Of fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com.